It's the story we're all told when we're growing up. Work hard at school so you can get into a good university. Work hard at university so you can get a good job. Get a master's degree, taking on more student debt, if you really want to mark yourself out. Work hard at the office so you can get ahead. But what if that's not the real story? Social mobility in the UK is stagnating. Class privilege is entrenched. Boris Johnson is the 20th Prime Minister to go to Eton. What if the idea of Britain as a meritocracy is a myth? That's the big question on the weekly economics podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. The fate of working class kids is largely sealed by their background. Some measure of inequality is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses and so on. That is a valuable spur to economic activity. Is that for me? It says bucket on the envelope. It's B-U-C-K-E-T. You really are the American dream, but from England, aren't you, really? I started from nothing, £100 in the minivan, and there's no, no reason on this God's earth why someone else can't do it in this day and age, either. The harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top. The country as a whole might not be a meritocracy, but my two guests today have more than earned their way onto today's episode. Joe Littler is a reader in sociology at City University of London and author of Against Meritocracy. Welcome, Joe. Hello. Thanks for being with us. And I'm also joined by TV's Sam Friedman, a real bona fide celebrity. You might have seen him on Amal Rajan's BBC documentary, How to Break into the Elite, the other day. Sam is Associate Sociology Professor at LSE and author of The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged. Welcome, Sam. Hello there. Thanks for joining us. So I mentioned a couple of things at the top about how bad this problem is. So social mobility stagnating, class privilege being entrenched. But could you both say a little bit more about exactly what the problem is with social mobility in the UK? We're going to start with you, Joe. Social mobility sounds good because it's generally taken to indicate movement upwards. Mm. Uh, the idea that we can move up the social ladder and reap the rewards of success. But the other side of it, of course, is that it involves downward mobility as well, which isn't really part of the same package. In particular, what meritocracy does is to promote the idea that we can all make it if only we try hard enough. And as such, it becomes a smokescreen for inequality and it becomes a way in which that social ladder can actually actually extends. It works as an alibi for it. Mm, mm. Sam, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I think point to really underline is that the sort of idea of meritocracy in this country doesn't seem to be working very well. I mean, just some of the research that goes into our books shows this quite clearly, really. I mean, if you look at people from working class backgrounds, only about 10% of those make it into Britain's top professions. And even when they're there, and even when they are the same in almost every way we can measure, work the same hours, level, same level of training, same level of education... Um, they still go on to earn significantly less. Mm. And I think it's these sorts of things that start to sort of puncture this very strongly held belief in meritocracy that I think surveys show a vast majority of this country believe in. Mm. So the numbers show it's it's arguably a myth, but where does the myth come from, Joe? What is the kind of history of the idea of meritocracy? Well, it's got different histories. It's got a history that exists before it's even coined as a word. Mm. So the idea in the 19th century that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm. um, is recognisable 
part of a Victorian landscape and also part of the American dream, the idea of that if you only work hard enough as an immigrant, you too can make it. So it's got these, these longer kind of histories and geographies. But as a word, it comes into being in English in the mid-20th century, where it's pretty much a term of abuse mm-hmm. for the industrial sociologist Alan Fox. You know, it's, He says, why, why would you have a social system in which you give greater economic rewards to people who are already prodigi- prodigiously gifted and have a lot of money anyway? Mm. So when it comes into being as a word, it's actually a, a, a term of slander. You know, it's something that seems ridiculous. So for Fox and Hannah Arendt and to an extent to Michael Young, it's, it denotes a social system which is, is wrong. Mm. And then in the 1970s, it starts to move primarily under Daniel Bell, theorist of the knowledge economy. And for him, at, you know, at a time when you have the kind of support of the welfare state, he thinks it's, you know, it's a good idea to encourage people to compete in a knowledge economy and from there it's pretty much adopted by a number of right-wing think tanks um, and used as a kind of weapon in the arsenal of neoliberalism in practice so it becomes Mm. a positive term to basically endorse the dismantling of the welfare state. So the idea before was kind of like you are where you are in society no matter what and then this meritocracy idea started to come into discourse as as you say a, a term of slander as, as abuse and then under neoliberalism became a way of framing aspiration for people and the idea that you could somehow change your position through working hard and changing I guess what you're due is that right? Sort of so the, the time when it comes into being as a word it's also being used to talk about the, the grammar school system and the way in which mm. people are being segmented and it's a moment where you have genuinely greater upward social mobility for more people because you have more equality in the form of the welfare state. Um, but as a term, okay. it, it becomes mobilised as a kind of weapon of the right from the 70s in order to basically in- encourage people to adopt and shoulder the responsibility of social progression and to blame themselves if they don't make it up that social pile. Okay, that makes sense. So, Sam, how does class, we've talked about class a little bit, but how does class and race and gender show up in this conversation around the myth of meritocracy? I know it's a huge question, but what are some (laughs) of the ways in which those intersections show up? Yeah, I mean, again, I can sort of tell you a little bit about how this this plays out in, 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 in the research we've been doing. I mean, I think just to say, you know, it, often people and, and certainly within organisations, diversity and inclusion is sort of organised in this kind of fairly one dimensional way. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what you see very clearly is sort of quite profound intersections in terms of how class and gender and how class and race and ethnicity play out in terms of affecting people's trajectories. So just to give you some sort of indication of that, both women from working class backgrounds and and most not all but most people from ethnic minorities who are also from working class backgrounds face a kind of double disadvantage in Mm. terms of pay and just on that I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at the pay gap in top professions that women from working class backgrounds face it's actually greater than the sum of the gender and the class pay gap put together which I think is really telling it sort of tells you something about a disadvantage that's particularly acute at that intersection. Mm. And I think, you know, you only have to think about some of the cultural tropes we have around upward social mobility in this country. They're incredibly gendered. We have this sort of notion of the working class boy done good and and, yeah. and, and what springs to mind is people like Alan Sugar, 
when you think about sort of the cultural tropes we have for upwardly mobile women, they're very different. They're much more stigmatising. They're often a, a sort of model of pretension or social mm. climbing, the sort of hyacinth bouquet oh, yeah. um, sort of figure. And I think, you know, those all play into the way in which, you know, how we code in terms of people's perceptions of their identities in, in places like the workplace carry together these these intersections in important and, and, and ways that are often, uh, and I think, not really thought about clearly. And, and part of that is that very rarely do you sort of have the data to be able to sort of see how those things play out. Mm-hmm. I w- yeah, I want to invite you to say a little bit more about the racial dynamic to it, because obviously yeah. you mentioned diversity and inclusion, and especially in uh, higher education, for example, there is a lot of targets, particularly around race and BME, yeah. as we know, yeah. and not much attention at all to the distinct intersection of those yeah. oppressions of class, race, gender. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things in a way, which is is, is kind of like needing to, to understand the class composition of different racial ethnic groups in the UK, which are really incredibly different and we we sort of go through these in the book but you know for example in terms of you know we're thinking about class background just to say in terms of this conversation about um what people's parents did for a living when they were growing up sort of occupational class if you will but if you think about it that way you know some communities like the chinese community in the uk chinese british um are actually significantly more privileged than the white community Mm -hmm. um whereas if you look at other communities like Bangladeshi British community is overwhelmingly working class. Mm. So the problem again is that you sort of have to understand those distinct histories, the often the migration histories that underpin those groups, and then I think sort of understand in a way that often we don't when we lump all those groups together, how that then plays out in terms of how people progress, you know, in the sorts of circumstances that we've been interested in in, in top professions. Joe, I want to invite you to come in on the on the intersectionality point, but also a, a few weeks ago I talked to Kia Milburn about the generational mm. divide and we talked about how baby boomers had actually experienced quite a lot of social mobility, arguably. Mm. Um, and so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why the system potentially worked for them and not so much for later generations, mm-hmm. if and why. Well, it mainly works for them because they have a strong welfare state in, mm. at a time when inequality is much less pronounced and since the 80s and the advent of neoliberalism in practice you see that social divide widening. What meritocracy as a discourse does is address the people at the bottom of that social pile in particular in a very insistent way so it's often the people who are most socially disadvantaged who are being most relentlessly targeted I think by what I think of as neoliberal meritocratic discourse or narratives where they're told um, that, you know, it's only, it's up to them. They just need to lean in. They just need to work harder. They just need to be entrepreneurial and they can make it. And what we've seen, I think, particularly from the 90s in mainstream media is the kind of spotlighting of very particular stories, um, parables of progress of, you know, how particular people make it. So it's it's that that's kind of correlates with reality TV and the way in which those those stories of competitive individualism are accentuated and made luminous mm. and and what that works to do is to kind of relentlessly individualize the responsibility of making it up the social pile and to ignore the fact that that ladder is getting longer all the time mm. 
I want to ask both of you, because obviously this is education is the, the field in which you're both most active, I imagine. And so when we hear about problems with social mobility, often the answer people reach for is education. You know, they say it's the great leveller. It's all about making sure we've got really good state schools. And then that will essentially address the problem because the state schools will educate people. They'll go to the top universities, top jobs. Uh, Sam, is it that simple? No, I knew you were say that. <laughs> um, what a surprise! Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, again, the stats on this are quite clear and quite striking. The one that sort of come out from that documentary that you mentioned at the start from our research is, you know, when you look at graduates from Russell Group universities, those from working class backgrounds that come out with a first are less likely to go into top jobs than those from privileged backgrounds who have been to Russell Group Universities who come away with a 2-2. And again, this is reductive, but why? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, then it's, you start to get into this interesting conversation about um, what's being rewarded in elite professions. And I think there you sort of have to start thinking about essentially the culture of those occupations and the fact mm-hmm. that usually the culture of those traditional professions in the UK have been formed by usually disproportionately white privileged men who over time have been able to kind of embed, even institutionalise in some cases, certain behavioural codes, Mm. a certain sense of how to be in the workplace that then come to sort of govern in a fairly taken-for-granted way who's seen as appropriate to hire, to promote, to progress. I suppose the point in a way is that those sort of those behavioural codes fairly arbitrary, you know, things about accent, dress, articulation, things that really have very little to do with how well you can do your job and certainly are not to do with the things being rewarded in the education system. Mm. So I think you see some of the ways in which the sort of things that our education system is rewarding is not necessarily what our labour market is rewarding. Just to follow on from that, so you, Sam, have studied class divides in some of the country's top employers, and one of the key concepts is the idea of being polished. Mm. Could you say a little bit more about what employers mean by that, or what you mean that employers mean? Yeah, so it's kind of these, it's it's one of the manifestations of these sort of behavioural codes, and it's what you tend to see in the more corporate-type professions in finance, in law. It's a capacity that is a little bit opaque, but actually is you know, in the interviews we did, very powerful in terms of governing a sense of whether people are seen to fit, Mm. um, whether they're seen as partner material. (laughs) Um, And they're normally, as I said, these sorts of elements of self-presentation, dress, you know, a certain degree of of, of confidence around self-presentation, discussion, the sort of tastes and cultural recreations that you practice. Um, and they all sort of come together as a kind of package that often is a sort of governs this gut instinct of whether somebody is polished or not. Mm-hmm. And again, the point I would always want to keep bringing home at this point is that really those sort of aspects, when you actually take a step back, are, are arbitrary. They are not things that really, I think, have any sort of basis in what that occupation and the work being done in that occupation is supposed to reward. Mm, I think um, it's, yeah, I think it's interesting because I don't know that I would accept that it's arbitrary. I feel like it's so deeply subjective and it does serve a purpose, which is to entrench power in few very similar hands. And so it's not, I, I mean, it's arbitrary, of course, in relation to the tasks absolutely. of the job, yeah, yeah. but it, it definitely serves a very real purpose of 
deeply codifying a way of of being and doing that is in line with the status quo. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's why it's so powerful as a driver of this sort of class ceiling effect that we talk about in the book. For those who embody those behavioural codes almost naturally because Mm. they form a sort of continuity from their background to their school to their... They are taken for granted to the point that they're not really seen. Mm. And I think that's, you know, one of the ways in which this sort of is quite powerful. And, you know, what you really see is that when you're talking, as we did, to sort of very many people from working class backgrounds trying to navigate these environments, that's when you start to really see the sense of intimidation, of confusion, Mm. um, of how to sort of make sense of these behavioural codes. And just to pick up on what Joe was saying, you know, part of the problem is, is that people often... I think, sort of blame themselves yeah, for their inability to kind of fit in. And, you know, there's an example from the documentary, which I th- is sort of tragic. So the documentary follows a, this lovely guy, Aman, who gets a first from Birmingham University and just sort of s- frames his travails as he's trying to get into finance. And, you know, he really struggles with these behavioural codes. But, you know, just the other day, he was on the Today programme with Amar, and, you know, the presenter says, you know, We've we've talked about all of this stuff. Who do you think's you know who do you think's to blame here? Do you think that your you know your employers need to change? And he said you know live on air. No, I think really it's 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 about me. I need to just become a bit more confident. Mm. And you know so it's even even when you sort of frame the critique, people feel mm. the sense yeah. of responsibility so powerfully mm. in ways that I think Joe's Joe's expressed really clearly. Mm. Joe, I want to obviously offer you to share any insights on all of that. Um, and also two more things. One for me is, at least in the work that I do, there's this ongoing conversation around what reform looks like, for lack of a better word. So are we aiming for, you know, brown faces in strategic places, you know, just changing who's at the table or are we looking to kind of demolish the whole table? Um, so a question around, yeah, what reform might look like. And then also some of the some of the more infrastructural things around this. So, for example, private schools, would a solution be to just abolish them? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, education is a really interesting area, I think, because it's a good example of how the meaning of merit can be something which isn't particularly examined and can therefore work as Sam's work has shown so well to kind of smuggle in all kinds of value judgments and kind of hidden codifications of status. So if you look at the history of something like Harvard admissions, for example, they've got history in which they tried to open up the admissions process to make it more widely available at the turn of the 20th century they stopped having a test in in latin and they tripled the number of locations where you could sit the test and that kind of diversified the amount of people that came in and the type of people that came into the university and then several years after that there was a kind of racist panic Mm. um, at the erosion of wasp privilege this is something lani gunier writes about really well Instead, they brought in a a different criteria of merit. So they specified that a a photograph had to be included and there had to be a description of well-rounded character. So what merit means, I think, is is it's often mobilised as something against diversity. So the argument is, you know, we just want the best person for the job. We just want the best student for the institution. But what the best is, is is something which needs to be really heavily kind of picked apart and, and thought about. Otherwise, it can work in deeply regret ways and what was the other question the point on private schools point on private um, schools whether they should just be abolished 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm for the abolition of private schools. I think there's been a lot of really interesting debate about that recently um, with the Abolish Eaton campaign. Mm. There's some really interesting work in Selena Todd's book on the people mm. where she talks about how the Labour Party earlier on in the century nearly went there, thought about making moves towards that and then held back and didn't. There's a lot which kind of remains to be done, I think, at the moment, at a time when grammar schools are... That are kind of reappearing by the back door, and that massive amount of money is being pumped into grammar schools to expand rather than to create new ones. Mm. And it's a way in which the kind of you know this, the stratification is the system is ext- is extended in in deeply regressive ways. And I think we need to, instead of you know working to endorse more stratification and privatisation, we need to kind of re-embrace the comprehensive system and think about that history in a, a, a more positive way. Mm, I want to, yeah, I want to continue talking about solutions with both of you a bit more. So the the Social Mobility Commission recommended that the government should extend uh, 30 hours of free childcare to people working only eight hours a week, raise per pupil school funding and pupil premiums and become accredited living wage employer. Is that a good enough start? Is it enough? What else might be some solutions around this? Sam, I'll come to you. And then. Yeah, um, oh, I, I, I now sit on the Social Mobility Commission so it's interesting being in 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 those discussions um and just to sort of pick up on joe's point i uh i would also very much advocate uh, the abolition of private schools but um that is a, a conversation that's that's really tricky to have um with lots and lots of different types of people in uh, in the uk but i think joe's right there is some movement around um people trying to mobilize thought around that and i think you know social mobility is an is an area where the evidence base around what private schooling is doing in terms of entrenching this sort of opportunity hoarding that those from privileged backgrounds are able to do is, is so clear cut yeah. that I think it's kind of useful. And certainly for me is why it's, it's, it always looms large in discussions about, about social mobility. I mean, I think, you know, in the book, we, we try and come up with 10 sort of practical policy solutions there are a lot of those are sort of you know they're not as as sort of big and bold as as, as abolishing private schools and and some are sort of I think more pragmatic around what organisations can do um, you know at the moment for example a lot of organisations don't collect data at all about the backgrounds of their staff which means you know there is a bit of a lack of understanding about how this stuff plays out and how it plays out even in many sort of liberal left-leaning organizations and so i think there's an element of 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 just pragmatically starting to routinely collect this data and, and understand the issue i think there are other sort of fairly straightforward things that can be done banning unpaid and unadvertised internships that clearly tilt yeah. very clearly in favor of the privileged and you know the other thing that that joe touched on briefly which is always a, a perilous sort of topic but I think it's interesting in terms of working with organisations is to start getting them to interrogate um, what actually merit means within their organisation and occupation. What capacities do everybody in that organisation or occupation think should be being rewarded and how does that actually compare with what at the moment is being rewarded because I think what we were finding is that in anonymous interviews, a huge amount of contestation from people in mm. lower and um, mid-career sort of roles, but for fairly obvious reasons, not a sense that they can voice those in public. So I think if you can create a space 
where you can have a, a, a more transparent conversation about what talent or merit looks like, you then at least start to get a more widely agreed upon idea, mm. a sort of more dem democratic idea about mm. what actually is being rewarded. And I think that can only be a positive thing. I think I agree with you and they're all really good suggestions. And I think the, the more kind of progressive end of uh, what Jeff Payne has called the social mobility industry that's mushroomed over the past few decades. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to do more because if we're just increasing the potential for social mobility for a few, uh, we still have the problem that we're leaving so many people behind. Mm. And we're not really, what we're not including in the conversation is is exactly that, all those people who are, are left. Mm. So at the same time of thinking about how you might move people through through the social structure, you also have to think about the overall levels of inequality within that and tackle the, the kind of that issue as well. So in terms of strategic suggestions, you might think about, for example, in, incorporating um, kind of the high pay cap as well mm. as a minimum wage, corporation tax, etc. Mm. We're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up in a second, but one thing I just wanted to make sure we we looked at was it feels to me that the kind of the idea of meritocracy as like a as a cultural phenomena is something that is deeply emotionally resonant with people. You know, gives them a sense of of power in a very powerless you know uh, situation, and the idea that if you just work hard, you'll get somewhere. And if we were to just do away with the idea of meritocracy altogether and say that's a myth. What would we lose in that and what might replace it to serve that same purpose, if that makes sense? I think part of why meritocracy is so powerful is it because it contains within it the seeds of things which are irrefutably true. You know, everyone wants to move and progress and realise their potential. So within it, those things are all, all good and they should be retained. But the way they're bundled up with profoundly regressive narratives about inequality and competition and individualization are the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to find a way in which we can combine that kind of libertarianism with uh, egalitarianism and have instead emphasized, you know, how we need genuine equality, genuine egalitarianism. Um, and we need more kind of public support and kind of the common we need the commons basically mm. we need and that's the space in which people forms. can truly realize that yeah exactly together yeah. yeah sam yeah i think i agree i mean i think you know you, you have to have this conversation about social mobility alongside a conversation about inequality mm. you can't you can't sort of put them um as i think they often are particularly sort of on, on the right or right of center you know social mobility as a sort of form of meritocratic legitimacy for inequality i think mm -hmm. that's a really unhelpful way of thinking about it and i think once you once you're tackling the overall issue of inequality it takes a lot of the heat out of um what actually the stuff you're talking about which i agree is very real and means a lot to people and having mm -hmm. done hundreds of interviews with people about this i think those are important elements about what people want out of life mm -hmm. um but i think you know structurally we we have a responsibility to think about what's at stake in Absolutely. those journeys. And I think, you know, just to say one other thing in that is that we often think about the upwardly mobile um, as a sort of winners of meritocracy. But, you mm -hmm. know, a lot of the work I've done sort of tracing the emotional experience of social mobility is that actually there's often, particularly in a highly unequal society and there's where people have to travel a very long way mm. um, to be upwardly mobile, there's a lot that's lost personally for those individuals around not just a sense of 
their identity, but often relationships with with family, with community, with friends that are lost through the need to assimilate culturally. Absolutely. Um, that you know that I think is really important to remember here. Mm. Okay, we are going to have to wrap up there, short and sweet this week. But if people, and I'm sure they will want to, want to hear more from both of you, uh, how can they do that? So let's start with you, Joe. Um, plug your book. Um, and are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? <laughs> Where do you live? All those things. <laughs> Not that one. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's at Littler underscore Joe. Um, you can find details about me and my work on the City University website. Um, my book is Against Meritocracy, Culture, Power and Myths of Mobility. It's free to download under Creative mm-hmm. Commons now and you can get that either from the Routledge website or from Evil Amazon. <laughs> Thank you so much. And Sam Friedman, same question. Yes, so I'm on Twitter at Sam Friedman Sock. And yeah, you can also find out more about the work that we've been doing at classceiling.org. Um, also on the LSE website, you can check out sort of profile of, of my work and our uh, the book that we've been talking about is called The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to Be Privileged and available from the Policy Press website at a nice discount. Nice. Thank you both so much. That is it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Listener.